pronounce your name correctly for me fritzy huber and i'm always fascinated by how people can become creative in the first place uh, and you have great history and, and childhood so please uh, give us some stories usually people will ask when you decided to become an artist especially if they've been through the proper system the proper system being the educational process and going to colleges and universities and, you know, making a decision what you were going to do with your life. Well, that was never part of my life. My life was being born into being creative with parents who were European circus, and um, we were always considered artistes. So creating was just part of growing up, and I never considered myself anything other. I was always an artist, making costumes, building riggings, you know, there's always that going on. Now, where was this? This was in the United States. We traveled all over the United States and Cuba and Canada, but we mainly stayed in this hemisphere. My parents... (laughs) It's just funny when you're defining, like, I lived in a hemisphere. (laughs) Most people say a city or a state, maybe. but you're... No, the hemisphere. Okay. That's great. So my mother was from uh, hundreds of years of circus background, and my father was one of those kids that ran away with the circus. He was actually from Basel, Switzerland, and he was supposed to become a bookbinder's apprentice, but at 16, he ran away, and his story is pretty incredible. And then he and my mother were married, and she was considered a performer's performer, which means that you can do a little bit of everything, but you have your specialty. And that, I think, is carried over to me, because you'll see that I've changed tracks a number of times, but I always come back to that center. My focus is hand paper making. And at this point, I've been a hand paper maker for 45 years, which seems very disparate from being a you know, a circus performer, but it has everything to do with it. And there's a story that links to that, too. You want to know how it goes? Do share. (laughs) One of the things that happens when you're on the road all the time, which we were nine months out of the year, and then we would go home. We had a home in New York and a home in Texas, and whichever one we were closer to, that's where we would go. And we also had surrogate family in Indiana, sometimes we would go there. But for nine months, you're traveling. Four people and a 28-foot trailer. So it's, it's really intimate, and you're always looking for things like water and lights, and yet you were going to ask something. And privacy. But, yeah. well, no, you said four people, so you, a sibling? My brother. Okay. My brother. We are one year apart. Okay. So he's one year younger than me. One of the things you're always looking for is water where to get it, how to dispose of it, how much can you get, is there any pressure, is it potable? You know, all these things about water, very, very important stuff. It's one of the first things you look for when you get to a location. And so the first time that I was able to get my hands in a vat of water, not knowing that this was going to happen, it was a euphoric experience. It was a sense of wealth and enrichment, and satisfaction, and a feeling of safety and security. And, you know, so I've stayed with it for 45 years. So water. And the other thing was, traveling all the time, I couldn't have a library card. 
So when I finally would get a library card, because every now and then my parents would leave me in town with some friends to go to uh, public school for a semester. We went to Calvert's Correspondence out of Baltimore, Maryland. And so if I was going to public school, I could have a library card and I would check out as many books as possible. I'd sleep with them. I, you know, <laughs> I would just devour these books because that's under the form of enrichment. And I finally got to the point where I would go to the library, walk down the aisles, close my eyes and inhale. And the fragrance is what I would respond to because I love the smell of books. And they turned out to be older books. And a lot of older books were made with very good paper. And so bet between that romance with the book and the paper and the lack of water and then the fulfillment of being with water, paper making is a natural for me. Plus, I'm a water-focused person, so... I'm not sure what the water-focused person... Um, because of the lack of water, I've always, as an adult, arranged to live within close proximity to water. Okay, I totally understand. I love being near water myself. I get yeah. it. I don't know that I'd call myself a water-focused person, but I enjoy water. <laughs> well, throw the paper-making with it. <laughs> totally <laughs> makes sense, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I have a huge affinity for waterfalls. As many, oh, like, that's my, yes. Uh, the sound and the, everything that comes off of the that. The energy love of that. that. Yeah, that's my little fetish so mm -hmm. when did you first find paper making I was taking a printmaking class in California and I was doing a lot of a lot of color brayers and color that I needed to have a very still room with not people walking around kicking up dust so my professor gave me a key to the lab and I would go at night and I was trying to do this really deep embossing, and I kept breaking surface with the paper. This was the early 70s, and big papermaking transition started happening in the early 70s. We were getting all our papers from Europe, basically, fine papers for art making. As and is still generally acknowledged. Well, it is. It is. Well, it's Asia true. And, and Europe, both very strong right. papermaking industries. That's right. Been, but there wasn't any fine handmade papers or art papers in this country until the 70s. Mm. And so here it is, early 70s. I'm in this classroom in the middle of the night, and there was only one other woman, an older woman, who was in there working with me, and she heard my frustration. I'm, like, talking to myself. And she... She said, what's your problem? And I said, you know, I can't get this deep embossing without breaking the paper. And she said, well, why don't you just make your own? And I laughed. And I went, oh, yeah, right. She said, no, look, there's an arc lamp in one of the other studios. And we can go in there and make a negative mold. And I was, okay. So she taught me. And it turned out that this was Cheryl Cunning. She had studied with Ishiro Abe, who was the living treasure of Japan at the time. And so she started showing me how to make my own paper. And it took me two years to decide that that's what I wanted. So by 1974, I was, I was on it and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then I went to one of my other professors and I said, here's my problem. I can't find anybody who teaches papermaking as a fine art in any of the universities. I'm finding industrial papermaking. And he said, do you want to teach? And I said, no, little did I know I'd be teaching, you know. But I said, no, I want to get in the studio. I feel like I'm a late bloomer and I just want to work. And, and wait, uh, what school were you at at this time? Just Palomar. It's a college, a junior college in California. Okay. But they have great facilities and they had great visitors. We had 
Judy Chicago and, you know, all kinds of people came through there because of the location close to La Jolla and the university in La Jolla. So we had tons of interaction with that university. It was really, really a wonderful time to be there. Anyway, so he said, why don't you just choose some people to study with and go study with some folks? I said, okay. An apprenticeship, basically. Yes, and yeah. that's what I did. All right. So now, now, I mean, I've seen you for the past maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you're, you, by the time I sort of found you, you already pretty well set in your processes and your ideas and things like this. So like, how did you go from like not knowing anything to apprenticing to like finding you sort of your own techniques and your own voice through papermaking? Because I mean, there's, there more, there's the more traditional versions of mm-hmm. papermaking where literally you make paper that's sub- simply a substrate onto right. which puts something else, which is very different than what I know your work, which is that you sort of incorporate the story in the process of the making of the paper itself. I'm trying to think here what what that first embossed piece was, was a handheld fan. And I was thinking about forgotten languages, the language of the fan. And I started making fans, and I must have made 200 of them. I mean, you can see one behind you there on the wall. That's more abstracted, but... I decided that I wanted to do this whole way of painting with fans, and the only way I could do the kind of painting I wanted was to use paper that had no sizing in it, no protectant. It's almost like Helen Frankenthal are using unprimed canvas to do staining. I could get the color to migrate through the substrate. And so that put me on this path to using paper. And I, during that two years of trying to decide whether I wanted to stay with it or not, I just kept going, well, you know, don't get trapped in this one thing. Let's try this over here. Let's go back to canvas. And I just never liked canvas. Uh, this material speaks to me. And nobody says you have to use canvas. Yeah, but you're right. It is story driven. I mean, everything that I do is story driven. Okay, quick aside, you mentioned the no sizing. Now, the no sizing on paper, does that affect the archivalness of the materials? It is more absorbent, but I've treated it with certain things after the fact. So if I can treat it after the fact, that works. There used to be this stuff that Kodak sold readily, and I don't know, you would know better than me because you're a photographer, called cellulose acetate butyrate, CAB. It is a surface treatment. All those big murals that were so popular in the 60s and 70s, you'd walk into a restaurant and the whole wall would be a photo mural. Those were all treated with CAB, this cellulose acetate butyrate stuff. And what it is, is it's a very, very small plastic bead. And you break it down with acetone and you paint it on. And even though it doesn't look like plastic, it creates a plastic. You'd be more familiar with it. Maybe you've gone to an older Italian restaurant, and it looks like they have bottle bottoms for a window, but it's actually cast plastic. That's cab. Interesting. Okay. I highly doubt Kodak still makes that. (laughs) I doubt it, too. Yeah. Okay, you mentioned storytelling, and this is one of the things, because I've got a few pieces of yours. I've got some like little publications that you've made. I didn't even, oh, yes. Yeah, the the burlesque dancers, I think. Yeah, the Pagliacinis, Femme Fatale Clowns. Yep, I have that. And then I made a book of pasties. Don't have that, no. But I have the the clown, the Femme Fatale Clowns. Yeah. Um, So... 
one of the things that I've always sort of noticed through your work is that, again, you mentioned storytelling. Mm-hmm. So that you always, it, you, you seem to have a very distinct narrative almost even in like each individual piece. Mm-hmm. And then of course in a series, there's some bigger arching narrative. How important is that to you when you produce stuff? I don't produce unless I have a story. Okay. So story That's is the, the inspiration. Yeah. That's the inspiration. And, you know, I, here in the studio, I keep, a sketchbook that I call the handbook and everything in it has to do with hands. And if I get stuck, I go to the handbook and it has collages and some writing, but it's a place to go when I get stuck. And the handbook always takes me to a story. When we're artists and we're sitting in our studio, we're making things and we're very connected to it. We have a very subjective, like, like, Oh, I remember this experience that I'm now trying to express through this. Exactly. How do you find collectors, buyers, gallerists, you know, anybody in the rest of the industry sort of outside your studio, do they connect well with it or do, like, do they get the stories or do you have to really do a lot of explanation? It's 50-50, you know, what might be very clear to me may not be clear to someone else. I don't know, you went over to the Cameron, did you see the exhibition over there, She Persists? Have you been over there yet? Yeah. Okay, there's a crib. Uh-huh. That crib is a story of Mary Nixon. All of us have seen abandoned houses, and I kept going by this one that was so derelict that I thought, there's no no trespassing signs. I'm going in. There's a story here. Which is so, the law, by the way, that, that I've actually been arrested a few times for trespassing, and yeah. the law is they can't actually arrest you if there is not specifically a no trespassing sign posted. That's what I was looking for. Are there any signs? No signs. So I went in and everything of value, what we perceive as value, there wasn't anything like that there. So what I did find were bits and pieces of paperwork and a history trail about this woman who lived there. And I decided that I was going to collect all that paperwork, being paper obsessive, and create a book with it. Well, most of the time I think when... and. You know, as well as I do, so many artists come across little caches like that of remnants of other people's lives and usually take it and make it into something that reflects off of your own life. And I just wanted to do Mary's life. So in the back of the house was a headboard and a footboard to a crib. And I took those figuring, you know, well, that could be the, the front and the back of the book, the cover and the back cover of the book. It took me eight years to come to a point, I'm, I'm getting back to your question, I just have to go through this, to get to a point where I knew what the book was, and I knew it wasn't going to be traditional. I woke up one morning and went, it's a file. It's a file, and it needs to be paged so that people can meet Mary in the same way that I did, in this sort of random sequence, which I ordered initially, but if it gets out of sequence and it becomes more like it was. So I don't mind if people get it out of sequence. But I did this thing, and I had my brother come help me a little bit with figuring out how to engineer this crib because I didn't have the other pieces to it, and it needed to become a file cabinet. And about the third time in, he said, do you have somebody who's ordered this? Is this a commission? Or I said, no. And he said, well, why are you doing it? And I said, because I have to. And he said, well, where is it going? I said, I have no idea. I just hope it's not my attic. 
you know, and made this thing. And then someone from the university came to an exhibition we had here at Acme and saw it and went to the director of the Cameron Art Museum and said, you have to buy this thing. It's the best thing she's done. And so they came over and they purchased the piece. And so that's what I mean by sometimes it really does connect. And sometimes the buyer comes to me and sometimes I'm a bit off. I have another piece, uh, this little pink dresser that's in the studio here that the top drawer of the dresser, it's called the pink room. The top drawer of the dresser has everything that I thought was exotic as a child about living in a house in one place and, you know, growing tomatoes and having a lamp that you didn't have to worry about it falling down while you were driving. And, you know, all these little things that we take for granted when you live in one place. So that's all in color and it's collaged or sheen collade onto handmade paper pieces that fit that drawer. And then the second drawer is all black and white images of circus, you know, that whole mundane thing. So it reflects... I think you have that backwards. Well, <laughs> exactly. That's the point, yeah. is that for most people, that's backwards. So that all that mundane, there's images of women standing on their head juggling, and, you know, all these things that were every day in my life, but not in other people's. And what the piece is about is how we misunderstand each other culturally. So sometimes people get it, and sometimes they don't. But, you know, I'm, I'm living with the little pink room. Oh, and the pink room comes from the first time I visited a child outside of the circus. And we were working a show in Canada. And I was invited to someone's home for a play date. And our parents met and it was okay. And I went to her home and I played and I got back and my mother said, well, you know, how was it? Did you have a good time? And I went, yeah, I had a good time. But mom, she's lived in the same room for eight years. It was just so beyond my understanding. So when I saw this little pink dresser, uh, I just thought that is the pink of that room and has to tell that story. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I grew up in one area. I grew up in Washington, D.C. area. Uh But as as soon as I hit 17 years old and like left home basically for college, I've lived in, I think, 20 different places since I left home. It's it's sort of like... I had a very stable childhood and basically mm-hmm. I just can't seem to find a place to settle down ever since then. <laughs> and, and you're so sort you're of the opposite. The yeah, you're sort of, well, well, we're reverse of each other. I don't think either of us probably are quote unquote normal. <laughs> what could you mean? <laughs> well, normal is, you know, white yeah. picket fans, one and a half children, a dog, all that kind of, yeah. you know, a nine to five job. None, none of the things that either of us have. No, we don't. Which I'm happier for, but mm-hmm. yeah, so be it. Um, okay, one other thing that because you started bringing up like sculptural stuff, and then you also have your sort of two dimensional sort of flat works. I always wonder because like uh, a lot of artists feel like they get stuck in a, in a thing that they're known for, you know, their style right. thing. But you seem to float like so. Like you've done, I've seen you do illustrations literally just drawn pieces i've also done set dressing and set painting and and prop making yeah for the movies right yes and theater yes right and then you and then you also do sculptural works then you do two-dimensional works so like has this been a benefit to your career or has this been sort of a detriment to your career so like you know not having an iconic style at this point 
that's the question I'm asking myself. I mean, I don't have a website, and everybody thinks I'm an absolute fool for not having a website, but I figure as long as I keep popping up on Google. I couldn't even find your email when I got to town, <laughs> just, just, just to be clear. Like, I ended up having to go through people of people, and it got somebody that I connected with got your phone number through them. Like, you're very hard to reach. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's your loss, I guess. But I'm, Or you're loss. incredibly mysterious. And this is a great coming plan you have going here. It's not really a plan, but I'll Google is myself it? sometime. Maybe it will be. I'll Google myself sometimes and just see if anything new is popping up. And as long as I keep popping up with new stuff because the media gives me things now and then. And, you know, as long as that keeps happening, I'm like, okay, well, I'm still on the radar. But it's, it's hard because... This thing happened a number of years ago where I was doing really, really well. And I had a lot of work out there with a number of galleries. And all of a sudden, my style changed. Not that much, but it changed. And I knew I wanted to do other kinds of works. All of a sudden, I'm getting calls back. And this is not what we're showing people. This is not the same. This is this. I was, and I felt like Eric Clapton finding another way to do Layla. You know, how many times can you, you do the same thing? You can't find another way to do Layla. There's the one way. There's the one way. <laughs> but, you know, he keeps trying to do all the different ways to do Layla. Slow, fast, this, you know, reggae, I don't know. But I kind of felt like that, and it's not who I am. And again, with my, with my parents being considered performers, performers, you can get off the main track. You can stay on the road, but get on the shoulders. You know, you can always come back to the road, my road being paper, but who says it has to be a specific way for my entire life? That would make me insane. The art world says it has to be a specific yeah, way if well, you want to this is fit why under their to, definition of success. I'm down to one gallery. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's why like Jeff Koons is still making big blow up, you know, <sighs> animals like, right. because that's what he's known for. Well, I'm bad at doing things for because I'm treating them like a commodity. And I'm not saying that all, I mean, look at this. Wayne Tebow turned 100. He is still working in the studio. And for him, he feels like differences occur within the same mode of expression over time. And he keeps expressing himself in what he perceives to be new ways and his Work is always gorgeous, but he's not seeing it as redundant. Internally, it's not redundant to him. Internally, for me, it's redundant. Yeah, visually, aesthetically, yeah. yeah, it can become redundant, and it becomes boring. I mean, I get bored with projects. I'll be, you know, yeah. and, and and I always get I always get bored and change my format before people start liking what I was doing. So like, you'll be working on a project and nobody really loves it. And then you say like, fuck it, I'm over with this. And you move on to something else. And then suddenly people love that thing that you've now put aside. And it's hard to go back. I can't go back. I think, you know, and I, I remember when that started happening and people were, galleries were saying, no, this is not what we're accustomed to. And I just, it, it lost a soul. I looked at the end result, and I wasn't happy with any of it. Okay, well, I'm going to take a step back on all this. And okay. I'm going to be blunt. I can cut this out if you don't want this, whatever okay, I'm about to right. ask, to go out. How do you make a living? P- 
period. <laughs> I'm doing several things. Yes, I'm in the studio. Mm. I have a small studio at home. I have this studio where I do the hand paper making. COVID has put an end to my teaching the small workshops. Of course. So the small workshops are, you know, a big deal for me. But I still have people coming through and purchasing work. Not enough. So I work part-time at, at the museum, the local art museum. And I also teach classes two days a week at Dreams, which is an outreach program for underserved youth. I've been with them for 18 years. I believe in the project, but I also need to make some money. So well, uh, those I mean, two things. That's the big question. I mean, it, you know, early on when I started this podcast, like if you listen to some of the first episodes of it, like I talk about like trying to be successful, you know, mm -hmm. famous in the art world, get in the annals of the art history books and all this kind of stuff. And like now to a certain extent, I'm sort of like, that's not so important to me at right. this moment. And it's probably not as important as I thought it was to many artists. Really what's important is that I find is, is that we make enough money to be able to continue our lifestyle. Exactly. And not be worried about money. Yes. I agree. So the I question agree. is, you know, like we want to be able to afford our studio and all of our art materials and just be able to do what we want to do and not be bothered by it mm -hmm. or stressed over it or anything like this. So, so I always wonder... How do people pull that off? Because I haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, two little part-time jobs. And I, I limit myself because I could work more at either one. But if I work more, I'm seeing it happen to a friend of mine now who is in a new position. And she thought she was going to have time to still do her own work. And when I spoke to her, I don't know, maybe a week, 10 days ago, I said, are you getting to do any of your own work? And she just sort of laughed and went, oh, that's going to be a while. Well, it's it tough. is It is what it is. You yeah. Know? I mean, that balancing act of mm -hmm. working enough to make enough money, but not so much that it's detracting from your, we'll exactly. call it your passion, your career, your whatever it is kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, that's a really hard balance to find. Yeah. And we often go one way or the other too far. Well, I... Agreed, because, you know, at some point, the money starts looking good, and before you know it, you don't have time to do the work, and the whole point of making more money was so you could keep doing your work, so I stay with two part-time and not take anything full-time, and that that permits me, well, it's, it's really, it's two classes a week and two days, maybe two and a half of the other job. So two classes isn't taking me that much. No, that's not much at all. So over the course of your career, how you know everybody desires a, a nice, slow, incremental increase in sales and income and kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. how, but I believe that realistically, most artistic careers are more like a, a series of ripples kind mm -hmm. of thing, like that like goes up and down, and up and down, and up and down over the course of a career. And so I, I'm wondering. How has your career gone? Because like, I made some mistakes in my career that mm -hmm. I've become fully aware of through this podcast, which is things like uh, moving is a very bad thing to do for yeah. a career. Staying in the same place is probably the, the, the most important thing to do because you need to build those collectors, build the reputation in one place. So how has your sort of career gone as far as like selling, exhibiting, whatever you want to call it? The move is a big deal. When I lived in Southern California before I came here to North Carolina, I had some... When did you move to North Carolina? Well, I thought it was 1987, but then I had a herniated disc and I had a artist in residence 
grant in Southern California, so I had to go back to be in residence for that. So that took me about two years, so 89, really. Even though I came in 87, I had to go back. So uh, when I moved out here then, I had so many commissions and so much coming my way in Southern California that I actually had to turn people down. I had a great studio, had all kinds of support, but I had had enough of Southern California. I'd been there 17 years, and the changes were just breaking my heart. And my brother came here and was working in the film industry, and he said, come look at this place. He said, you're going you're gonna to love it. It's like California was when you moved out there. Well, not exactly, but it was, it was not what I was living with out there, which was money bought anything, estuaries, cliffs, you know, and not having enough infrastructure to support all that. And it's just difficult to watch. And okay, so I came out here and I said, if I can find people of a kindred spirit, and I did, and you know, so I moved out here. But all of that flow stopped when I came here. The commissions for all the artworks and being able to come up to LA, I wanna show you a property and can you make something for this? Or I wanted to introduce you to someone. You know, it it was different. They had a law in place at the time where 1% of every new building budget had to go to artwork. So a lot of that was happening. So it was the time too. So I don't know how much of it was the move, how much of it was the time, but I've managed here, but not like it was there. And I thought at the time that it was a linear growth. If I got this far, then it was only up from here. But I agree with you, it's not like that. But we wish it would be like that. Oh, yeah. We hope it would be like that. <laughs> that there's a, an ebb and flow is how it's been for my life. That I can still do my work. That I can still have a studio. That I don't have to do that much aside from my work to earn that extra to keep me going. And I'm in the arts. I'm, it's not like I'm doing something else. I remember meeting Masami Teraoka at one point on the, on the West Coast. And... He was speaking to a group at the university in La Jolla, and I remember asking him what he did until his work took off. And kind of like you were saying about your work, people realize what it is after the fact. He was experiencing that, so he worked as a janitor and did this incredible work, but worked as a janitor. And so I asked him, you know, why, why a janitor? He said, because I don't have to think about anything else. I can just do the work and earn the money I need to make, and I don't have to think about anything else. I can think about my work the whole time. So sure. It's like Bukowski working at the exactly, post office. Exactly, exactly. Or Romare Bearden, his social worker. Well, that's more involved, but yeah, no, no. You know, that's much more involved. Yeah, so I figured my choice is to work in the arts, because then I'm always being exposed to and having conversations about the arts. Well, see, and that's an interesting issue that I've sort of run into with some people some people some artists Mm -hmm. do very well with jobs that are you know tertiary to their art Mm -hmm. practice because it somehow supports them and keeps them involved and all kinds of whereas some other artists really love having jobs that have nothing to do with their art form so that they can do like you were just saying which is basically not think about any work-related things, and they could just walk away from the job and then just be creative, and, and it doesn't sort of use any of their creative energies 
right. in their job kind of thing. So you seem to fall into the you want to be surrounded by art at all times kind of it's, camp. Um, I tend to be rather reclusive. No. Yes. <laughs> you don't tell. <laughs> you couldn't find my email. <laughs> nope. Still don't know your email. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people that the amount of time that I spend sitting here talking to you, that's the amount of time I need quiet. I am not judging you. No, I'm no, just I'm just saying, saying this is what my personality is like. But it's a way of my putting myself into a place where I can have an art conversation. Working at the museum, I get to see what other people are doing. I get to hear responses. There's an interaction that I wouldn't get by choice if I weren't working there. And working at this outreach program for youth at risk or underserved youth, I get to see what young people are thinking. And sometimes I'm thinking in my own way and along the specific line, and I don't see what's on the other side of that line. And they'll bring that. They'll bring that. It's like a, it's a little gift. It's a way of looking at life in a way that I wouldn't normally look at it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love teaching because mm -hmm. a i love seeing other people sort of find their voices and help to assist them and guide them and all that kind of stuff right. but i also because in many ways they make me rethink things like they question things yes. in ways that i didn't question before but suddenly maybe now i might question because they brought up this topic that i had never thought to bring up exactly and i'm just like ah, oh, okay yeah you can do that <laughs> that thing i never thought you could do <laughs> exactly all right. You brought up earlier a little bit about uh, getting a grants and residencies and things mm -hmm, like this. Now, mm -hmm. have you done a lot of residencies and have you received slash applied for a lot of grants? Um, I'd say maybe I've, I've received a half dozen grants. Uh, in California, what, the last grant I had there before I left that I had to go back for, that was a combination of the California Arts Council and the NEA. So that's as close to an NEA grant that I've gotten so far is that joint grant. Out here, I've gotten grants from the North Carolina Arts Council, and then for a couple of years, just recently, Keenan Foundation. There was a Keenan Foundation grant out of D.C. Mm -hmm. to work within the housing community and, you know, do art projects with entire families. So you couldn't attend the program without an adult and a child attending together. So... <laughs> So, you know, things still happen. That one came to find me. I didn't reach out for it. The California Arts Council grants, I've reached out for, and I've gotten a few of those. Well, one of the reasons why I'm asking about that is because there's this huge movement, which, of course, started probably in the mid-'70s in reality, mm -hmm. towards uh, being able to write eloquently about your artwork. Mm -hmm. So whether that's grant applications, residency applications, or just general artist statements and all this kind right. of stuff. like That was not common until around mid-70s from yeah. what I was told by a previous guest. And now it's very important because whether it's applying for these you know, fundings and supports or whether it's even utilizing social media well, like right. hashtags and all these things, like trying to find the right way to you know, in writing, express what you're trying to do visually. How do you feel about that? Like, do you do, do you do that? Do you do it well? Uh, do you I, wish you had I help? I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Jane okay. Baldrich in Florida and I just applied for a grant last year. We didn't get it, but the writing of the grant was really fun. I love 
putting the idea down on paper and then watching what comes out of that writing experience. I worry about people not writing in cursive anymore. I know that sounds crazy, but there's a magic that happens. I print, but the the experience of not hitting the keyboard, but the hand and the writing instrument, something comes out that wasn't expected. It's almost like you're looking at yourself closer. And then, and then there's a flow of an idea that maybe you weren't aware was sleeping back there and you wake it up in the process of writing. Oh, sure. I mean, I, in many ways, I enjoy writing uh, as a just a practice, mm-hmm. but I don't enjoy writing for other people. <laughs> like, yeah. I love just like journaling exactly. and things like this. Like, that's great. I'm, I'm all for that. But I don't want other people to read it because I'm sure I have horrible grammar. I probably don't spell things correctly. I don't care, <laughs> but other people care. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing because, of course, I live in a foreign country. So, like, anybody who's reading English is obsessive about, like, oh, how boy. English is structured. And, and I'm just like, I don't know. Stop asking me. Like, just because I'm a native speaker doesn't know I actually know how to speak or write English. I just do it. <laughs> and it, it feels right. Like, that's it. But that's just, that's my issue. So... How about residencies? No boundaries here. Yeah. I went to the first one, and I've gone on and off over the years. It's over 20 years now. So, you know, those those have been wonderful. I haven't done residencies anyplace else. They seem to be becoming exponentially more important in an artist's growth of their career. Yeah. Like, I, you know, when I was younger, uh, 30 years ago, like, I don't remember hearing about, like, oh, so-and-so went to a residency here and went to a residency. I don't remember hearing these things about prominent artists. Right. I remember hearing about them being in their studio 10 hours a day, all day, working, working, working. Whereas now, if I feel like the residencies have become a very big stepping stone in careers that has not been normal in the past. Well, I don't have a passport right now because COVID, they've quit issuing passports and mine ran out. So (laughs) I can't wait until we travel again. Uh, where I want to go, and, and the next grant that I'll probably write when we can travel again is to go to Japan. How can I be a papermaker and never been to Japan? Have you ever been to the Morgan Conservatory in uh, Cleveland? I have not. It's magnificent. I highly recommend it. They actually grow their own mulberry and everything. Oh, well, you see this big piece of bark behind me? I do. I had a call from a friend of mine that had to cut down a mulberry tree, and he said, do you want the bark? And I stripped the whole tree. Uh You know, normally you have to take branches, and that's very tedious work. And so I just, you know, I said, let's wait till the full moon. So it's full of juice, you know, and it just came off so easy. So that's that's my mulberry bark. I've got a, a tree's worth of it. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a little bit of a history with papermaking. I love papermaking, but mm-hmm. I just never really sort of got into it as, as obviously as much as you have. But I do love a good quality paper. I am a, absolutely yeah. a fetishist about good quality paper, <laughs> period. Not handmade, not handmade, irrelevant. I but am good too. quality paper, like, ugh. All right. Back to something, some things you brought up before. Um, okay. Sales. In general, 
your pieces are are very unique. They're one of a kind. They're basically, mm-hmm. you know, somewhat sculptural or two dimensional, but they're all one of a kind. You don't do work in any multiples. How do you even come up with a price for them? Oh, that's tough because it ends I'm up here being... to ask the tough <laughs> questions. <laughs> it ends up being what the market will bear, and that's it's so hard. Especially what I run up against is that it's only paper. That, that it makes me crazy and if i did this on canvas i could ask a lot more oh i get people saying oh it's only a photograph i'm like fuck you exactly <laughs> yeah it's decades of education all the technology how I had long to buy. did it take you all my life yeah that's right it yeah. took me all my life absolutely so i'm at a point now where it's like does that seem fair no you know, does it seem fair to me? So uh, constantly people are asking me if, if I'll lower my prices. You can't lower your prices. I can't do that because it's only paper. And this doesn't work on Canvas. I'm sorry. And online, it's very different. I've had other folks uh, encourage me to do prints because it's so tactile. Your it, work would not translate to It prints. doesn't translate. No. It really doesn't. No, I agree. It would not. Also, you often work with irregular shapes and irregular mm-hmm, edges, mm-hmm. and like trying to transfer it into a rectangle. It just, it was not. No, I'm stay with your originals. Yeah, but so pricing uh, is the most difficult. It is. I mean, everything's. I mean, because uh, like I look at some of the people that I admire, and like I'm shocked by their prices, and I mean that in that oftentimes I'm shocked by how low they are. Yeah. Not how high they are, because I generally don't admire the people that have high prices, but that's a whole different issue. But the <laughs> the point is, like, you know, how do you come up with the price for these things? Because, I mean, you're talking about, you know, years of practice, you know, unique mm-hmm. techniques, specialized tools and all this kind of stuff. Like, so, like, do you have some, like... I wish I could come up with like a spreadsheet on how to do how to price something because yeah. you can't do it by the square foot or square meter or whatever. Like you, you it's because each material, some could be more expensive than others. Right. You know, your mulberry that you you know, hand hewn is going to be a more expensive thing because you can't replace it. Kind of also versus some you know denim that you've beaten up and made into a paper pulp Mm -hmm. so you know like what are some of the factors when you're thinking about trying to create your prices that you take the amount of time i put into it like i'll do these very small pieces sometimes with just my standard size mold and deckle it's like nine by 11 inches i'll do something small and it'll be the same price as something that's three times that size but if it took as much work then i'm going to charge that amount of money it's the amount of time I put into a piece and the amount of thought I put into it and how much I want it in that person's hands. <laughs> like the piece I sold at the museum, I probably sold it for less than I would have liked to have gotten for it, but I wanted it to have that home. Sadly, a lot of artists do that. They sort of yeah. undervalue themselves well, because they wanted a collection. It, you know, and, and that happens a lot. If a museum is interested, of course they would love to have it for free if they want that piece in their permanent collection with provenance and, you know, but I just can't. I find that to be wrong though, like in in the long term. Kind of, yeah. Because I mean, a museum is basically, they're going to then be the repository of this work. Mm -hmm. They will be the scholarly place where people will look for this work for, you know, centuries in the future. 
and they will be continually to be open and attract people so like yeah. they should pay for it it's it's funny i'm going to harken back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier and that is how diverse the work is like it goes to sculpture and then it's this and then it's that they have three pieces in their collection the first one was purchased by the previous director deborah velders the second one is the mary nixon history and the newest one they have was a commission that i did for the library and when they built the new building and took the old one down the museum ended up getting the piece all three of them are so completely different that you wouldn't know it's the same person. Well, and that's the thing that I'm so, okay, so we'll go back to that but conversation But they're again. recording that now, you know, because they have all three pieces that are so disparate that they're recording the differences between the types of work I do. Okay, but how, how long a time span are you talking about between these works? The library piece and the first piece they purchased were not that far apart. Well, because so, like, I'm thinking to my own work, and like, if you bought something from 2000, and then you looked at something that I made last mm-hmm, year, mm-hmm. it's 20 years difference, pretty big difference in, in a lot of my aesthetics and all this kind of stuff. Right. But there was a time period in there for like 10 years where it was pretty consistent of a certain look and feel. But like, it changes. I mean, it's natural that we change. We should. We should yeah. be growing and getting more whatever, interesting, engaging, better quality. Right. Yeah. But right. there's still going to be a, a similar aesthetic to to our, our sort of visual voice over the course of our careers, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah. We, we hope there is. Well, all three of the pieces they have tell a story. That's the only thing that really connects them. And paper. Well, no. One <laughs> of them. That's the thing. That's the thing. Well, maybe that's the thing you need to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I could, but you know, they were they they've purchased the one-offs. Hmm. One of them is handmade paper. The other is you did or didn't see the show that's over there. You have or haven't? I did. Okay, the overhead shears. Oh, okay, those were yours. That's the library. See? Oh, okay. That's the library I piece. I could Okay, I saw the overhead shears and I couldn't find a label for it so oh. I couldn't figure out who did it yeah it's the tales of Genji okay so and that had a lot to do with a show that I had at the old St. John's in 1996 and they had just acquired some Japanese prints and there was a lot going on with the Japanese community and and Japanese papers and I decided I was going to present that as one of the options to the library for this commission and so that, that's the tales of Genji. I'm, I'm going to have to look for the label and see what they've done with it. But the third piece is so different. Deborah Velders again invited me to make a toy. And I decided I was going to make some hero figures. And there are a number of uh, conjoined twins from North Carolina. And when I was a child, I had friends who were cranially connected as conjoined twins and they were black and they were in Cuba and I thought if I do them as hero figures it's going to be so misconstrued politically who do I go to to make this understandable how do I communicate this hero figure and so I went to Ang and Chang of course North Carolina gentlemen farmers and you know they're in their little tuxes and they're conjoined by the stomach or the diaphragm and uh, so I did, I did uh, Ang and Chang hero figures, and they're stuffed with uh, cracked Thai rice. 
I think I've seen this. Siam. You might have. Yeah. See, but that has nothing to do with the other two pieces that are there. Well, and that's the thing. Like a lot of us do that throughout our careers. I mean, we do random one-off pieces because mm-hmm. we're 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 trying something, we're thinking of something, or in this case, you were commissioned to do something. And this is one of my other pet peeves about commissions. I, I have mm-hmm. the whole thing about commissions. I I wish that people who want commissions would sort of come up with the idea of like, I you want something that's of that artist's oeuvre. So like, don't ask them to do something that's not their style. Yeah. Because I talk to a lot of artists and they're like, I love all my artwork except for my commissions because they have nothing to do with what I do. Well, it, it actually does have to do with what I do. The two books that you have, or the one book that you have, and then I mentioned the pasties. I grew up in costumes. I grew up in fabric. I make my paper out of fabric. When I do the mulberry, it's not that often, but most everything is made out of rags. So I'm very familiar with fabric. And to do that didn't seem like it was so far out of place. It was just another tool in my toolbox. Well, okay, I should rephrase my whole thing. Like, so it's not that we do things that are random, you know, like these one-offs, but we do these things that are one-offs in the thought that it might then be the seed of another thing. Yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of those little one-offs end up not being the seed of something. So then it looks like just a like like a tree, and it's like a branch that just didn't keep growing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's still similar. Well, it's, it's kind of like tree. that. Yes. <laughs> but it's not, it didn't grow into something bigger and more robust. So no. I've got lots of that stuff. Like yeah. I worked with all kinds of weird processes and materials over my career that they look like one offs uh, because I just didn't continue to work on them. Well, that piece was enough. I didn't need to pursue that path anymore. I think that I continue on when I want to pursue the path further, but it, it was, that was enough. It didn't need to go any further, but it was a good experience. One thing that I'm always fascinated about with artists, because I have this issue with my own stuff, is storage. So you make works that are both two-dimensional and three-dimensional. What do you do if they're not on exhibit or sold or anything like this? Do you have a storage unit? I heard attic earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have very little in my attic. I have some flat files at home, and I have little flat files here, and I keep some up there. But I'm not nearly as overwhelmed as people who have a lot of large canvases. I see in the studio across from me how much is stored in there and up in the attic space here. And the other thing, it has to do with how much preciosity you put on a piece. I have pieces that I don't want to destroy up that I don't touch, and few of them are in here in the studio that I won't do anything to them. It is not beyond me to go, I don't really want to keep that. Let's put it back in the beater and everything that's on it that won't come off or get beaten down. That becomes part of what I call spumoni. And spumoni is that a is, technical term? No. <laughs> there, it, there is a technical term for a type of paper that's made in Japan called chiri, C-H-I-R-I. And cherry paper is, let's say I'm cleaning the mulberry, and there are uh, knots 
in the mulberry and they're dark brown and you really don't want to make fine paper with all that stuff so you kind of throw it aside but there's some fibers that are good that are attached to that so you make this paper that's been considered like a wrapping paper for shipping and stuff like that in Japan and that's the cherry and the cherry has all the remnants in it and what I love about the cherry is that it comes with a different kind of history and it's a little bit like collaborating with the surface rather than dictating to it. So it comes with a personality of its own and then you respond to that. And I, I like doing that, but I can't even tell you how many works that I've done that with. A lot. I do bonfires and I burn things that I don't <laughs> want anymore. It's very is it cathartic. Like a, the smoke is a prayer going yeah, to heaven. Is that it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it, you know burning it to the gods kind of thing. Yes. Uh -huh. And a little catharsis is sort of fun to do. Is there anything that you want to expand on that we touched on and maybe you didn't get to say enough about? Mm, only that, even though I am a bit older now that I still see it as a journey that moves forward. And that just because I may not be where society expects me to be after doing this for so many decades, doesn't mean that it's the end of the journey or that I should give up. I saw that happen when I was in my 30s and I knew a lot of artists on the West Coast who didn't hit their mark by the deadline they set for themselves. Usually it was men who set their deadline by their mid-40s, which is really a lot of pressure, or 50s at the latest. And if they didn't hit that, there was a sense of, well, why, why am I doing this? Why do I keep doing this if I'm not getting anywhere? And it's not a matter of not getting anywhere. It's a matter of the journey itself. And that's what I truly feel. If I beat myself up because, oh, I should have been here or there by now, and I should have been in this history book or that history book, then it's so depressing and self-defeating, and you kill the gift. If there's anything that's, if there's such a thing as sin, then I think that might be turning your back on a gift you were born with. Yes, you have to work, but there is a gift attached to that. And if you turn your back on the gift, you've committed, I feel like, a big sin against life. So no matter how big or how small it is, it's important to embrace that gift and share it if you can. Okay, something that I thought about from what you're saying is, is productivity. Like, mm -hmm. do you feel like it's one of those weird things? Like, I feel like in my youth, I was very productive mm -hmm. but i don't think necessarily that the quality was quite as good whereas now i feel like technically i'm probably less productive but i think that the quality of the outcome has gotten richer and better i agree with that completely okay i'm not so driven to do i used to work on five pieces at a time because it was so compulsive about continuing and then I'd have to pin some of them up on the wall so I wouldn't touch them until I was ready to touch them. Now if I do one to three at a time I'm happy but yeah five was a pretty normal number to be working on at the same time I never worked on just one thing and now I feel like I can be more focused without pressuring myself and actually work with one piece at a time. All right 
The last little bit, I'm going to tie together a couple different questions on this. Okay. The business side of the arts. Mm -hmm. Are you any good at it? Do you like it? I don't think I'm very good at it. Fair enough. I think I'm horrible at it. I I think that there's still so much for me to learn. And, And I've been told before by people who are in higher positions than me in the art world that I'm just not political enough. And what that comes I'm shocked. <laughs> and that comes down to being competitive, too. And I, I don't feel that competitive urge. I've never been involved in... I did race for a while. I take that back. I, 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 was a, I taught surf launching on catamarans, and I worked for Hobie Cat, and I raced. And I was one of the few women who raced. Hobie's daughter, Paula, was one of the racers, and we would see each other a lot. And I enjoyed that, but it ended up taking the fun out of racing. I mean, out of sailing. And I, I found myself not wanting to go to regattas, and it made me look at, are you competitive? I'm just not by nature. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not generally friends with many photographers because <laughs> photographers are some of the most catty, competitive, you know, just snarky people in the arts world because they all think we're going to steal their ideas and blah and steal their clients or their collectors or whatever. And I, I just was like, forget it. I want nothing to do with you all. Like, it, it, that's not the point. Like the point is to be supportive and to create a community and find a tribe and like all these kinds of things that we all want, not competing. Like I'm not in competition with anybody because I do not make anything like anybody else. I may use the same techniques as other people, but that doesn't mean the outcome is the same. Yeah. But a lot of people are, I don't know what it is, insecurity, fear, anxiety. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it exists, but I find it very disheartening in the creative industry i do too and it's one of the reasons you'll see behind you uh, this year with covid coming i was supposed to have the second exhibition that i've been well it would have been the second year that i've curated this called fiber outside the box and i have some local people in it and then i invite people from out of town and i always invite other paper makers because it just enriches us all to see how other people work and how other people think. And this doesn't have to be my show. And there's usually 16 to 20 people when I do it. I did one exhibition that I curated that was called If It Fits, Mail It. And artwork coming in the mail from all over. One of the gals who just recently moved away from Acme, the studios here, she actually sent a shoe in the mail, not boxed, you know, just addressed, and and it was it was the most fun show, and I had two hundred entrants, and that was that was great fun, and it built a community, and the response was wonderful, and that fills you. Well, and we'll see that brings up sort of the next thing I was going to ask about, which is like that practice, like because I participated in those sort of mail art projects, yeah, yeah. and those va- mail art projects are very niche. You know, like you can still do something that's sort of your style, but then you have to reformat it to a, a way to be able to put something through the mail. Your medium and sort of your method of doing it is very niche. <laughs> like on the one on the one part, you work with a very niche 
sub uh, material being mm-hmm. paper, which not right. every you know that's very niche in and of itself. But then beyond that, your your storytelling component of it is also very much a niche thing because a lot of people just want pretty things on the wall, like they don't care about these you know you know very personal, very unique stories and all this kind of stuff. So like, have you found that like? Because I have a belief that like the more niche you get, it actually ends up being very beneficial because you you really find strong supporters. But on the other hand, you have limited those a quantity of supporters. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is: Is am I right in that belief? <laughs> <laughs> it narrows the audience. Yeah. But sometimes. After the tsunamis hit Thailand, which I went to Thailand after the tsunami, and then I was spent some time in India, and then here comes the tsunami in Japan, and I started thinking, here's the story. The story is the gyres out there in the ocean don't all contain trash. They contain remnants of beautiful collections of fabrics like the temple fabrics from Thailand, the saris in India, the kimono collections in Japan. And I found a threadbare old Indian quilt that had all these beautiful pieces of sari in it. And I started casting these pieces that have remnants from that quilt in them. And they're just floating in the paper. And then there's some painterly qualities. There's, I'll segue for just a moment. To paper makers, I'm considered a painter. And to painters, I'm a paper maker. So I'm straddling that fence all the time. But those pieces with the remnants of sari in them crossed over to the folks who like something decorative on their wall. It's still the story. It's not me going, oh, what would be pretty? You know, what would somebody want to match their couch? It's nothing, nothing like that. It's expressing the beauty that I feel is hidden in what we perceive to be trash. Okay. Based on what you just said, how do you feel? This is so just a personal opinion. How do you feel when somebody buys a piece of your art and they don't give a shit about the story? They just think it's pretty. That's their problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, and that's the I thing. mean, yeah. really, I told the story. They responded. They may not even know why it struck them deeply, but they're living with it. And maybe more will be revealed. Whether they get it or not, it's not my job. I can tell them the story, and I've had people come back to me, and when they hear the story, go, oh, it means so much more to me now. That's great, but they may never have that. It may just match that beautiful whatever on their couch. You know, I don't want to go there and hear that. But but if I took that on, it might just freeze me up. And I don't think Miriam Shapiro gave us a great gift when she said pretty is not a dirty word. Right. I mean, that sort of thing is like. When you make work, you you impart your 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 story into it, regardless of whether it's actually a story, but like your your life story into the creation of it, and it's sort of you know, is there a separation uh, at the point of like commerce, where it, it does it become relevant anymore, kind of thing? And like I like, for instance, a friend of mine just recently sent me a thing saying, "Oh, we put your piece of art in our bathroom. I hope you're not offended." And I'm like, why would I be offended? Bathroom is like the best place for art because everybody goes into it. (laughs) 
it's the one room in the house that everybody, everybody sees, sees it. it. And not only do they see it, but they spend time in it. So it's not like just a room they go through or anything like that. So like to me, I mean, of course, the work has to be appropriate for a room with humidity and all that. But but if, if you can put a work of art in a, in a bathroom, that's actually a rather place of honor in a home because... <laughs> Everybody has to see it, and I like that. So, like, everybody sort of has a different sort of tier because, like, I also know artists that are like, "Oh my god, if you put my piece of art, and I'll buy it back from you if you want to put it in your bathroom because I'm right. offended by that." So, it's sort of interesting about like how involved we are in our works and when, if and when we can create that separation of what we put into our work versus what somebody else sees in it. Yeah, well, I again, I don't feel like it's my job to follow it into their home and what they do with it or their office building or their garage or, you know, wherever. I have taken a piece back, though. I have to say, I did a, I did, it's one of those commissions where somebody sits on you the whole time and I really felt like my soul wasn't in it. It had all the movement and all the color and everything I wanted, but it just didn't feel like my soul was in it. Well, the guy's wife decided that she didn't like it at all, and it was living in the garage. And when I saw him the next time, he told me what happened. I said, why don't you come to my studio, get something your wife likes, and trade me that piece back. I'd rather have it not in the world than sitting in somebody's garage because it was disliked. I mean, that's, that's the sad story, you know? But that's the only time that I've gone, no, I do care what you've done with the work. Fair enough. Um, last little bit, it would be just any advice to younger creatives that are getting into the industry of well, like things that you kind maybe... Of, it's kind of hard advice. You're going to get no. So ask anyway. You know, maybe it'll be a yes. But expect that you're going to get no. Expect that there are going to be people who are not going to respond. Don't get disheartened because of those no's. Because that's just part of it. My parents raised me with the, the there's no harm in asking because it's only a 50% chance you get a no. That's it. That's but 50% it. chance you get a yes. Yeah. And if somebody asks you if you can do something and 50% of you feels like I could do that and the other 50% goes, are you nuts? Go with the 50% that says I can do that. I've done that lots of times. <laughs> I, was a, I was a scenic painter on Iron Man 3, and I had never done rust before, and we had to do the freighter. And I spent six weeks working on the rust team, and I'm really good at it now. <laughs> I should hope so after six weeks of it, yes. Okay, side note before we wrap up. How is uh, working in the, mo in the film and theater industry? The, the, is that um, helpful to you, hurtful? <laughs> Yeah, no, I learned a lot. I met some really interesting people. I like working in 3D and at that scale. I mean, it's phenomenal to watch. If you're not in great physical health, don't take film on. Yeah, it's very taxing. It's very taxing. I had, a, it was a, it, the one I just mentioned, Iron Man 3. That was considered a really great schedule because it was a union film, right? So it was only a 12-hour day with two 15-minute breaks and a half hour for lunch. And that's the glorious schedule. 
I worked for IATSE myself at the Kennedy okay. Center um, in Washington, D.C., and I tell you, it was the cushiest job I have ever had in my entire <laughs> life. I was sitting there coiling cable. You know what I'm talking oh, about. Like, yeah, just, like, making course. coils out of cable for eight hours, and I was being paid. It was it was a a Sunday after midnight on a holiday. Paid. You got paid. Yeah, with a short turnaround. And so I was being paid more than like $275 an hour to do the oh exact gosh. same thing that I did for $10 an hour at the 930 Club. <laughs> so I love IOTSI. <laughs> the unions are wonderful. This is a right to work state, so they're always up against that. But the unions have managed to get a foothold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it makes it a, it makes it a, a reasonable life for people working in the industry. You know, you go s splits night to day, day to night with no turnaround in 16 hours and maybe a half hour for lunch and no breaks and you're not getting paid as much. That's what happens with not no union. Well, but I mean, the thing is, is it's also still the gig economy, though. It's it's just like it's sort of like just like every other part of your life. You know, mm -hmm. you teach sometimes you're not teaching others. You, you're, you're working at a museum. Sometimes you're not working some others. You're selling art. You're not selling art. You yeah. get you get a film. You don't and then you don't work on a film for a year yeah so like it, it's that i wish that there was some way in the creative industries to have more stability mm -hmm. because like i know of a gallery that what they do is they will actually like get a they'll find an artist that they love and they'll say okay we're just gonna pay you a salary that happened to me in california okay when they didn't sell work i got a stipend yeah, I tried to introduce that here. It didn't fly. <laughs> it's a, well, I mean, it's it a tough one. It's it a tough worked. idea, but it but from the artist side, it's a magnificent idea. So like, even if they sell the work for fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, you get your salary. Like, and you you get a nice consistent salary, so you don't have to worry about money. Yeah. Unlike and well, pretty much everything working. else we do. That's right. You and they, they can working. make as much money off of you as they wish, depending on what price they want to charge for your art. But you, as the artist, end up with a stability, mm -hmm. which is one of those things that almost none of us have in our lives. But see, I didn't grow up with stability either. My parents were independent contractors. My grandmother and grandfather, they worked for Ringling, but they also were descendants of a Circus Brumbach, which... That was the circus that Ilya Kazan did, Man on a Tightrope. And that circus fell apart after that. But that's where the roots were. And my parents decided, because my father was first generation and not from a circus family, that um, they would be independent contractors because as independent contractors, we could stay in one place for more than three days. You know, how's that? Go to a park in New York, like Palisades Park or a park in Canada, and stay the whole summer. There's a concept, you know? And so we were independent contractors, but that meant every year they approached agents. Every year they didn't know what was coming next year. And so that wasn't really an insecurity. That was a lesson in having faith in your future, whether you've got something planned or not. You know, it sounds like me, doesn't it? <laughs> it does indeed. Well, I mean, because when, when you were just saying all that, I was just thinking like oftentimes the next generation either continues a trend or 
or goes to the opposite, you know, so like yeah. a Republican parent have Democratic children or, or, a, you know, accountant parent have, you know, theater kids, you know, kind of like doing the opposite yes, of your, yes. your parents often, or exactly the same as your parents. So it sounds like, you know, like you were brought up in a lot of insecurity as far as like future incomes and future jobs, mm-hmm. and that you have chosen to have lead the same life. And my brother and I both thought we did not do that. But I can't remember what he did. Well, he was in the film industry for 30 years. But you show up, you put up the tent, you put up the riggings, you do the show, you pack it all up, and you leave. And it was like a little magic happened. It, was, it was, wasn't there, then it was there, then it wasn't there. That's the film industry. And he watched me do paper-making workshops all over the country, and I would just load it up. I'd go to a location, I'd teach the workshop, pack it all up, and leave again. And I looked one day, and I went, we're doing exactly the same thing. We think we're different, because we're not in the circus. But we're doing the same thing. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. I hope, I hope there's some interest there. Mm-hmm.